Good morning. Pastor's message this morning is entitled, Loving Your Enemies. And the scripture reference is Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. Romans 12, 14 through 21. <clears throat> Bless them that persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, your word is true, and that we would know it, Lord, is of utmost importance to us, that we would apply it is necessary for us, Lord, in order to show forth your glory in this world, the glory of the change that you've brought in us through Jesus Christ, the glory of Christ himself. Lord, we wish not to be seen for our own sake. We don't want to be uh, admired and extolled for our own sake. We want to bring glory to you, Lord. And how we do that is something that comes very uh, difficult for us, naturally speaking. We cannot do it apart from your help, apart from your grace, and apart from your power. So I pray that you'd work, even now, to teach us from your word and to change us so that we would live according to it. For the glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I, I'm one, you may know this a little bit about me, but I do like symmetry, I like systematics, I like things that are in order. I'm not altogether in order myself all the time, I like proportions in their rightful place and logical lists. These are, and those are all very good things when it comes to how we convey truths as teaching and preaching. They help us to put things in category. And sometimes we, we tend to stress things that uh, need to stay in an order or neat divisions or hard categories too much because we like them that way or because we see them as a benefit to the hearer or to those that we're teaching. And from verses, uh, verse 3 to verse 13, Paul has really very, very clearly been dealing with how the church operates among itself, how we ought to think and act towards each other. And as we see these last remaining verses in this chapter, verses 14 through 21, we might be tempted to think, well, now he's had his gaze at the church within the church and now he's putting his, our gaze outside of the church. And I was tempted to see that nice, neat division because we like to think that way. And we all like to talk about Romans as the most systematic of all the epistles. But I'm going to ask you to constrain that, that drive in you to seek such a neat and orderly end of this chapter. 
what we will end up seeing in this chapter as we see chapter 12 come to an end is that we will see the apostle moving, as it were, from our response to those outside the church and our response to those outside the church and inside the church as we live out this Christian life in a fallen world. The right way to think about these remaining verses, 14 through 21 of chapter 12, is to see our responsibility toward the world, those who have, have been defined as the world, those living in a, this temporal rebellion against God, as well as to one another as we're faced with the consequences of living in a fallen world. And so this isn't that neat, this, this is just how we relate to those outside the church, but we're going to have to consider how we relate to each other, whether inside or outside the church, as we live in a fallen, sinful world. And we do. And we're going to see verse 14, first of all, and really, we, I only have one point, talk about order this morning, and in this one point, we're going to be ver- focusing on verses 14 and 17. We might talk a little bit about verse 18, but see, the way that we live in this world is not altogether neat and orderly. <laughs> oh, we want it to be neat and orderly, but sin doesn't allow such a thing. It, uh, sometimes we got to get our hands dirty, and sometimes it's hard. And I think that may be why God inspired Paul to write these verses this way. So number one, and really the only point this morning, is that we see a transcendent and reasonable response to wrongdoing in verse 14 and verse 17. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I hope you know somebody who's done something hard lately, but something that was good. Something hard, we can admire someone who does something hard to achieve a good end. When I used to work in baseball, and I would see these gifted athletes throwing 100 mile an hour, left-handed prospects, And I would see them out there in their workouts, and they would just be trotting along. They got their signing bonuses. They're just cruising. They're they're happy. And then you see the guys who are gifted, who are athletic, and who are out there working, expending themselves to better themselves, to attain to the major leagues. You know, they don't want to just be minor leaguers forever. They want to get to the majors. And I remember as an outsider looking at them saying, That's admirable. They're not just resting on their laurels. They're working. And in in a sense, that's what we're doing when we're working, right? Work under this, in this fallen world, is something that is hard. It's not something that comes easily. In fact, it's sometimes very difficult, but we admire the people who work through hard things to attain good ends. In a sense, what we see here in this command, this virtue that is being ascribed to Christians, to us, is absolutely admirable. But it is hard. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now we can say up front that the difference between someone who works to attain something in this world is very different from this because we know as christians 
We don't work to attain the good end that God has in store for us, namely our salvation. That is provided for us. Verse 1 says, by the mercies of God that is already yours, you're already grounded in the grace, the standing of grace in Romans 5, now you are expected to live out your life in this way, living sacrifice and so on. So, so we're not called to live this way in verse 14, this hard way, in order to attain salvation, but because it's been attained for us, we're being called now to live this way. And so that tells us something about the end. The end of why we are to live this way is to the glory of Christ. Let me just say that, let me just lay that out there in the first place. Paul's here, the, these words that Paul, as it were, recites, and I'll talk about that just in a moment, were as radically unworldly and heavenly at the same time to the Roman church that he wrote to as they are to us today. This was not culturally sound teaching in this day. This is not something that somewhere back in time the apostle was drawing on some wisdom of a philosopher and said, you know, this is the way we ought to live. When people persecute us, we ought to bless them. We ought to seek their well-being, not their cursing. This is radical in light of this world that we live in, in, in light of any society that we live in. You know, as I've been saying, a lot of the things that we come to in, these, in Romans chapter 12 don't seem as radical to us because we take them for granted. We've had thousands of years, over a thousand years of Christendom, growing and being, being grounded in the Western culture. From Greek to Rome and onward to the West, these things were being in, integrated to the Western way of thinking. And as I said last week, secularists have no grounds to stand on when they tell us, do good to your neighbor. They have no grounds to say that. Our, our lived human experience is so vastly different. Our, our upbringing is so vastly different. They have no grounds to say you should treat somebody who is different from you right just because you're human. There's, there's no groundwork there, and I don't have time to work out why that is. But we know as believers, we've been made in the image of God. We know that we've been taught these principles from Scripture now for 2,000 years. And before that, Israel was told in Leviticus chapters 19, I believe it is, love your neighbor as yourself. All the way back in the law when that was given. Love God with all your heart. This is the two greatest commandments. Jesus was quoting the Old Testament when he taught that. And so these are Judeo-Christian ethics that we cannot take for granted. But in this Gentile world, in the world that didn't know the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, this is foreign idea. This is a foreign idea, a foreign concept. And even more so when we come to Christ. This is radical in this world. And what we see of Paul here in this teaching is not a quote-for-quote quote word of Jesus, but it is a recital of Jesus' teaching that preceded him. Matthew 5, we know the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke 6, 27 and 28, love your enemies. 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, this is our Lord teaching his disciples and those who were present uh, this radical Christian principle of life and yet many within the Christian church have disagreed over exactly how we should take the Lord's teachings here. Some have asked, should we, and I'm talking about within the historical evangelical tradition where we don't see that Jesus is teaching us do these things so that you will inherit eternal life. In other words, it's incumbent upon you to work them and, and merit for yourself eternal life by doing them. But we see this as a, perhaps a pattern of life that all Christians ought to live out. Is it that or is it a demonstration of the impossibility of keeping the law fully? How can one do this in its full, uh, being fully faithful to what Jesus teaches us? He goes above and beyond the law in the Sermon on the Mount to teach us what is the depth of the heart and the sincerity of the way we ought to live out the law. And none of us keep the law. Not one of us. Everyone comes short of it, as we know. So is it a pattern of life? For those who are living now in the Christian world, and some say, no, it's impossible for us to live this way. Jesus didn't call for us to live this way. Some say, oh, it's only this uh, future millennial pattern of life. So in the millennial kingdom, this future thousand-year reign that, that many Christians believe in, that's where this sort of life, this kingdom pattern of life is to be li lived out. And whatever else the Sermon on the Mount is, it is meant for us today. Paul is not teaching this to a far-off community in a millennial kingdom that is far future. He's teaching this to a church at Rome, espousing the teaching of Christ on the sermon on the mountain. This is for us. This is for you and I today. And it indicates that this content that we just read, this radical idea of life and how it's to be lived out, was to be expected and to be known by the church. Paul doesn't go into any detail about how to do this. He's not teaching them something new, in other words. He's not laying out for them a new principle that they have to be established in. This is, in a sense, the way this comes through in a, in a literal sense, is this is merely a reminder. He expects that they know what is expected of them as Christians. When you're persecuted... Bless. Don't curse. This is an essential component to what you and I are called to be in the world. I told you that, we sung that when we sung that song, Give Me Jesus, you can have this world, but give me Jesus. When we realize what that means, we come face to face with truths like this. When you're persecuted, bless. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them seems like the kind of teaching that Paul would expound upon, and yet this is where it ends. He doesn't go much further than that. It's so prevalent, we believe, in the church that they would need a reminder. But this is not the only time in the epistles where this pattern of life is repeated 
Peter says in 1 Peter 3.9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this. To this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now Peter's words agree with what Paul says in there in verse 14, and also what he says in verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. You know, I thought of that principle when I thought of that six-year-old boy who was shot on the highway in California because of road rage. And who hasn't been there? Somebody cuts you off or somebody gets in your way or somebody's acting a fool and you're going to show them, you know, that they're wrong and you're right. Led to a six-year-old boy being shot and killed this last week. This same pattern of life is not something Paul just merely taught. It's also how he lived his life. 1 Corinthians 4.12, he said, And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. But more importantly than Paul's own pattern of life, we know that this was the pattern of our Lord's life. 1 Peter 2.20-24, here's how he talks about the life of Jesus. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and that's important. It's not persecution if we're doing wrong. Let me just say that. That's as a definition of persecution. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And here is the answer to why we can and indeed why we ought to live this way and why a life lived this way is not foolish. It's not worthless. It's not meaningless. It's not a failure. It's not in vain. It's victory. Notice what he says, Peter, as he continues in verse 23. But continued, that is, Christ continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And I think he means regardless of the cost. Live to righteousness. Righteousness will cost us very quickly, if not already, in an ever-increasingly evil society. And then he says this, and this is all important, again, to why we are called to live this way and why it's not in vain to live this way. He says this, by his wounds you have been healed. Now Christians go around in this life as the ones who are healed, the ones who are forgiven, the one whom God has forgiven much the one whom he has shown grace upon grace, the one whom he gave his son for out of love while we were enemies. We have been shown this love. And it's settled for us. This is why I said this this pattern of life is not for us to attain our salvation. It's because our salvation has been attained for us. We can live this way and it's not in vain. We know it's not in vain in the Lord because He already did it for us. He already made it such. This is gospel-shaped living. 
Paul has prepared us for this kind of living back in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. It's because of the mercies of God that we're grounded in in Christ that we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service, our true worship to him. And the scriptures define this as transformed living, not being conformed to this world. If you are going to be conformed to this world, when people persecute you, you are getting back at them. You are going to get yours. You're going to pursue it. You're going to seek it with every part of your being. You're going to want it. You're going to want your vindication. You're going to want your vengeance. And you're going to desire that they feel the same pain you feel. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is not to be considered exceptional Christian living either. Even the term radical can only be used when comparing this way of living to the world. Yes, it's radical in that comparison. But what verses 14 and 17 teach us about our response to evil done towards us is foundational to being a Christian in a world that rebels against God. This is what it is to follow Christ in a sinful world. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. We should expect it. We don't receive it all the time. But Jesus says, expect it. And to the degree that any given people or society are licensed to act out against Christians, to persecute us. We are called to follow Christ's example because we are Christ's people. Because we follow him, we are disciples of him. Our home is in heaven, remember that. And we are not treasuring things of this earth, otherwise we would be conformed to this world. Not transformed. If we are worldly in the things that we treasure... Here's a little application for us. If our faith lines, lies only so far as we perceive God's protection of us in this life, his, his giving us things in this life, in this temporary service, if we serve him merely for temporal gain and benefits, then these verses and these truths, this way of life, this Christian life is untenable and it is as much untenable as it is undesirable. We wouldn't even want it. Who wants this if this world is what we're looking at, if this is what we're clinging to, if this is what we're hoping in? It's the bottom line. If that's what matters most is my respect, my popularity, my image, my bank account, my power, my prestige. If that's what matters most, you cannot live this, this Christian life. You cannot live the Christian life. Let me say it that way. This is not exceptional to the Christian blessing those who persecute you. This is the Christian life. You know, the Christian life is a hard calling to live out in this world. You want to follow Christ because it's easy, because in this life, you know, all of the 
trimmings are, are great, and there are the 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 burden is much lighter. Let me say to you, than following after the world, it's much lighter, but it is not easy. But it is right. If we know that God is for us in eternity to eternity, he loves us with an everlasting love, Romans 8. An inheritance is laid up in store for us, the inheritance of God himself. What belongs to Christ by rights is ours because we've been adopted as his children. We are justified by faith now, and that will continue. God will continue that work of salvation until we are glorified, made in the image of Christ. And we know that nothing can separate us from this love that God has for us. All of that is true of us. We are beyond the reach of our enemies. Persecution cannot overcome us. You see, this is not defeat for a Christian. When we read this as Christians, we should see in this the opportunity to bear forth an example of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in our own bodies, in our own lives, to the world. This is not the end of us. Because all those things are true of us because of God's mercies. Modern ethics and modern politics do not even give the opportunity for such a thing. If you are involved highly in modern politics and modern ethics, there is no place for this sort of truth, this sort of principle. I actually read a children's book. I think I've told you from, about this before. We got, we got it from the library. And the whole point of the book is that uh, there's all these sea creatures, and one of the sea creatures is picked on. And so the theme of this book is that this sea creature who is picked on needs to stand their ground and needs to get back at these other ones who, who were picking on it, who were, who were treating it poorly. And the whole point at the end is that you've got to stand your ground. You can't let anybody take what's rightfully yours. Your respect is due to you. Get it back any way you have to. This is a children's book. And I just change words as I read books to my kids. I just edit them right on the spot. I don't know if you do that. So they never got that. Now they're hearing it for the first time. Um, the words, there's nothing tricky about the words in this. There's nothing, oh, maybe we should understand bless as, as kind of like you, you bless them in the way they go to prison and get reformed, you know, that kind of blessing. There's nothing tricky here. To bless means here to seek from God their good. You don't take blessing as the way you are blessed and just bring it down to some meaningless, you know, judgmental thing. You bless them. You want God's good for them. How do you do this? To not curse them means that we don't desire and therefore to seek our persecutors' destructions from our own hands. He says it in verse 17 very clearly. What he's talking about is we do not seek their destruction. We don't take vengeance. When they do us wrong, we do not think reactionary thoughts. How do I get them back? We are to think through worthy ways. Good, that's one way we could translate honorable. To respond in accordance with who we are in Christ. (coughs) 
as Jesus was being tortured, as he was being disfigured, as he was mocked, as he was taken and paraded as the greatest of sinners before sinful men, as he was crucified, bearing the burden of our sin, mocked even with the, the placard placed above the cross, tortured under the wrath of God. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it takes your breath away. You know, I felt wrong this week, and I was angry. <laughs> I, I keep telling you all the bad things I do every week, so uh, I was angry, and I mean, I'm in the middle of just reciting all the justifications for what I'm about to say to this. It was a business, and I, I think they did me wrong, and, and I was just going to let them have it. And I started thinking about this. And I think, okay, so my, my truck speakers on this side don't work now, and my window doesn't roll down. But am I going to take Christ and show them nothing of him? And that doesn't mean, and, and I'll get to some applications, this doesn't mean we do away with justice in the world by any means. But our response, what's in your heart, do you just want to get them? Do you want to see them pay? Christians ought to share the posture, the sincere posture of Christ. Not because of our ability to overcome our persecution. We don't have the ability to overcome it. And even we are not victors because we go through it ourselves. We are victors because he did it. We're victors because he didn't revile. Because he won for us the, the ability to model our life after his and not lose anything but gain everything. You see, he made this Christian duty possible for us. He made it mean everything in the world. He made it victorious. Now, when we come to these principles, we come with questions, don't we? We come with good questions. One question I thought of, how can we promote justice in society? While living this way, justice is good. Righteousness is good. Let me say, in answering to that, in the first place, the way that we promote justice and righteousness in the society is that we live so as not to do wrong towards others. That's what he says, Romans 12, 17. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, verse 18, live peaceably with all. And then he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, on the same vein, in the very same principles, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 
You don't be the cause of harm. You don't be the cause of persecution. That's the first way you matter in this life in promoting justice and righteousness. You don't be the wrongdoer. You don't be the oppressor. Christians can be tempted. Oh, if I just do this, I'm going to get ahead in this life. And usually when we do that, when we have that way of thinking, again, notice the conformity to this world. I'm going to get ahead. We don't look at our brothers and sisters. We don't look at our neighbor in love. We look at them as a means to get ahead. And we can be guilty of the persecution that we ourselves are being taught to resist that response of retribution and vengeance. When we do good and we seek the good of others and we love even our neighbors, love our enemies in this proactive way, in any given society, we become a means of confrontation to evil. Examples of the gospel even. We don't become the gospel. We never do. But we exemplify it. We point others to it. They start to ask what Peter says in Peter chapter, 1 Peter 5 when people see Christians suffering while they're doing good and they, they see them and they see that they're suffering for good and then they start saying, well, why do you still have hope? And they start asking for the hope that lies within us. That's the great apologetic answer is that when we're persecuted and we still have hope and we live in this world, not as those who were crushed and and defaced and torn down, but those who still are victorious through persecution, they ask, well, where where is the grounds of your hope? (laughs) Haven't we taken it all away? No, you haven't. You can't. That's a great apologetic for the gospel. And this is the means that the apostle speaks of in 2 Corinthians 10.4 of tearing down strongholds in the world. The gospel going forth. Second, this no way, this principle, and you have to listen carefully, no way forbids us for pursuing assistance from the law in defense of ourselves. Acts 25, 11. Paul, if you remember this, Paul, I think it's Acts 21, he goes to Jerusalem and he is not welcomed there. And from that chapter to chapter 24, he is going through all sorts of trials, all sorts of things. She's going to help me out here. <laughs> we love our kids here. And, and, and they're going to go through every sort of means to see that he's put to death. He's got people trying to ambush him. He's got all these things. But finally, he, he's put on trial. He's in Caesarea now. They take him away from Jerusalem where he's a little safer. And Festus is, has him on trial. And here's what Paul says. If then, I, if then I am a wrongdoer and committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. And he says this, I appeal to Caesar. He's appealing to the law for protection. Now, this is the same Paul, an apostle, who was often stoned and beaten and shipwrecked and who has gone through so much persecution for his faith that you would expect him to say, okay, whatever happens, happens. But he appeals to the law as a protection from persecution. But when that protection wasn't there, did that cease and stop Paul? 
from serving in Ephesus? No, it didn't. And he got a good lashing and beaten for it. He got good stonings for it too. But when it was opportune, when he had opportunity to seek the law in helping him from, saving him from persecution, he sought it. So this does not relegate us to not seek justice. Subjecting ourselves to laws that do not contradict God's laws, even ones that protect us, is not only acceptable, we can see that they are good. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 14, in the same context that Peter recited that Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile again. He puts this principle, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperors as supreme or governors as they sent, or I'm sorry, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So we subject ourselves to the law and we can call upon the law then to intercede. We can appeal to the law for protection from persecution and for justice. But even while we're being persecuted, even in the initial, in that interim period, we are called to live as our Lord lived in the face of it. We're called to live with these principles that even while we are facing the persecution, maybe we're seeking the law to help us so that we won't be persecuted, but even while doing it internally and in our hearts and externally, we are not desiring the damnation from our hands. We are not desiring evil for those who are persecuting us. <coughs> And if our law systems turn against us, as they have many Christians in the history of the Christian church, and rulers oppose themselves to us, even as they do throughout much of the Christian world, in our world today, even as they did against the Lord and against his anointed, against Paul and Peter and other apostles, we can rest assured that God will be with us. He is our strength and, and our refuge, our shield and high tower and to him belongs vengeance we'll talk about that more but in verse 19 he says beloved never avenge yourselves leave it to the wrath of god for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord this is not easy to follow i don't look at any of you today with the expectation that if sin continues to be celebrated and promoted in our society, you yourselves will be free from persecution. When, when a culture, when a society exalts sin, it cannot have the same fellowship with that sin as it will with children of light, with Christians. Because we're not going to fellowship. We're not going to take part. We're not going to celebrate. We're not going to preach that those sins are acceptable because we love the sinner we want them to come to repentance for their sin so that they might be saved but when those two aspects of a society come together there will be marginalization there will be oppression there will be persecution and i don't pray for it i don't desire to see it in my life but I expect to see it if things continue the way they're going. And this is not going to be easy. Do you love Christ? That's where it begins. Do you trust him? 
that you have a salvation which nothing can take away. So you lose your job. You lose your respectability within your family. Your neighbors don't want to be seen with you. Facebook cuts you off. Twitter won't let you tweet. Those are the lowest of low, but they're there, right? We see they're there. Who do you love? And the answer should come that we love God and we love our neighbor even when they're persecuting us. We need God's help to do this. We need the Holy Spirit to be active in empowering us to fulfill this duty because it does not come naturally to any of us. Let's pray for it. Our Father in heaven, we hallow your name. This, this principle is so far above us that apart from a salvation that is equally far above us, we could never, we could never see its value. But because you have given to us an eternal inheritance in the heaven that it fades not away, it's reserved there for us. The Holy Spirit is in earnest of our inheritance that you have given to us now because of that. Lord, not only can we expect that to do this is right, we can know that it's right and we can actually do it. We know historically Christians, we know Christians around the world are going through severe persecution. Let us never be the ones to persecute, to oppress unjustly. But when it comes against us, let us take it with patience. And let us not curse, but let us bless and seek the blessing of even those who hate us and thereby show the love of Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.